We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17 as we continue our series in the life of David. And we come to uh, one of the most famous stories in the Bible this morning. A story that if you um, even had a whiff of church in Sunday school um, as a kid, you've probably heard the story of David and Goliath. It is even in our, more, even our modern vernacular, usually around March when you hear the David and Goliath stories in sports. But here we read it. You see, many of you, we're going to read all, well, not all, but most of this text. And so bear with me. It's 58 verses um, in chapter 17 on this account. We're going to read most of it, but I have a few spots that I'm going to skip for the sake of time. And many of you need to hear this because the only place you've actually read about the story of David and Goliath has been in children's storybooks. And you've yet to actually read the full biblical account of what goes on here. And that might be important to glean um, this, so let's read all of this this morning. First chapter, First Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah and Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Then skip down to verse 24. We'll pick up again. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. That means no taxes. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And takes away the approach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now picking up and now in verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, 
The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bare in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And when the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Then the Philistine, the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give it into our hand. And the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. So this ends a reading of God's holy inerrance. And in Falber word, may the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Let me pray for about seven seconds. Because so many of you have heard this story, and it might be stale to you. So let's pray that the Lord by his spirit would make it alive. Lord. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you'd fall fresh upon this text and upon our ears so that we hear anew and rightly what you're trying to communicate to us in this text. Oh, God, make us courageous, men and women, for the glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the theme of this text, excuse me, <clears throat> the theme of this text and the call of this text, I think, is courage. And the, what becomes obvious if you were to look at this and you were to be one who was faced before Goliath is you would need courage. They needed courage desperately. See, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing the right thing in the face of fear no matter the consequences. Courage is not the, the, the absence of fear. It is doing the right thing in the face of fear. Courage is standing firm. It is not running away. It is not moving when there are frightening things that stand before you. Courage is doing the right thing, even if, even if in doing the right thing, it might end badly for you. 
I think the best illustration perhaps of this in all of the scriptures is in, found in Daniel chapter 3, another famous Sunday school story about three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Winnebago. I mean, an Abednego. You know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They have to go before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar builds this huge idol, as image of himself. And he says, all of my leaders and all of my rulers have to bow down before this. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, said this, no way. We're not bowing down before anybody but Yahweh himself. And so Nebuchadnezzar brings them to himself. He arrests them, and he says this, listen, boys, I don't want to have to kill you, but I will. And you see that enormous pit over there with a fire in it? I'll burn you to death if you don't bow. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say these famous words, O king, our God can rescue us from your hand, and he can rescue us from this furnace. But if not, we we still aren't going to worship your idol. That's courage. That's courage. That's doing the right thing. Even if, in this, in this moment, God will not prevail in the sense of preserving them from death by fire. That's courage, being able to do the right thing regardless of the danger and indeed regardless of the consequences. Courage, we don't have courage in the hopes of twisting God's arm to get us what we really want. Courage is doing the right thing even if God doesn't give us what we want temporarily. In our text today, Israel is in desperate need for courage because the stakes are high and the nature of their opposition is downright frightening, isn't he? Goliath is no one to mess around with. The text goes into unbelievable detail, a detail you see almost in no other place in the Old Testament, to describe both his size and his girth and his armor and all the things that communicate to us that this man is no one to be messed with. Goliath is a champion. He is used to fighting these battles. He is a well-seasoned champion. And the text goes on, says that he did this. He comes out before Israel. You notice in the text that it gives us the geography, that Israel is on a hillside in one place, and the Philistines are on another hillside, and in between is a valley. And every single day for 40 days, not one day, for 40 days, Saul, uh, the Goliath would come out to the valley, and he would taunt, do some ancient Near Eastern smack talk to the people of Israel. And he would say, you send your best man out, your champion out, and we will fight together. And notice this about the nature of the opposition, because this tells us something about the things for which we most often need to have courage, is that Goliath could not come out once, he came out for 40 days. But then also notice this, he would come out both in the morning and in the evening. And he's close to where David lives, and he's close to Judah, and he's actually on Israelite territory. You see, the things that we tend to think about courage as being those things like being in a war zone, those things that tend to actually for us as Americans in particular are those things that seem so distant from us. But that's not actually the type of things that we most often need courage for. The things we most often need courage for are the things that are invading your house, the things that live in your skin, the things that bother you from the time you wake up in the morning and taunt you when you go to bed at night, those are the things you most need courage for. The things that come at you day in and day out. Israel needs courage because of the nature of the opposition. They also need courage because the stakes are so high. Goliath comes out, he says this. It's called representative warfare. We're going to look at the significance of this later. But he says this, I'm the champion of of Philistine. And here's the deal. You bring your best guy out. And if I beat him, then you're our slaves. And if, if you beat me, then we'll be your slaves. What's at stake? What's at stake for Israel? What's at stake for the person who's a representative of Israel and goes and fights Goliath? The whole nation's well-being is at stake. 
It's a matter of life and death, of slavery and freedom. If the, if the Israelites lose in this battle to Goliath, their wives will be taken as the Philistines' concubines. Their children will be taken as their slaves. This is a matter of life and death. The stakes cannot be higher. They need courage. They need courage. And so do we need courage today. Those things that get in our skin Those things where the stakes are high, those things that drive us crazy, that keep us up at night, that wake us up early in the morning where we cannot go back to sleep, it's for those things that we need courage today. So the times when you you go to the doctor and the doctor says, we found a spot on your lungs, that is a moment in which you need courage and which the question for, for you in that moment is, will you be faithful or will you be like Job's wife in which you shake your fist at God and say, God, I curse you and now I'm just gonna die. Which will it be? We need courage when you're called in by HR and they say, we're going to let you go. And you have an existential crisis in that moment, not only about your financial well-being, but about who you are as a man or a woman. Who am I in this moment? Well, you have courage. You need courage when your daughter comes to you and says, I'm pregnant. And you're going, oh my goodness, what are we going to do now? And you can run away from that situation. You can disown her. You can push her aside. You can go the easy way out, or you can walk with her in it. You have courage in that moment. You have courage, courage, courage in the moments in which you most desperately need it. If you're a wife and you need to approach your husband about a failure in your marriage, and you're scared to death by it. You have to be courageous when, as a parent, you need to go confront your child's most courageous thing you can do is go and say the hard things. You need courage on the day in which you're in the room with, it's a happy day, you're getting your sonogram, you're seeing what you're, the heart, hearing the heartbeat of your baby, and the tech and everything is, is gay and gleeful and happy, and suddenly the sonogram tech goes quiet and goes out, rushes out to get the doctor, and the doctor comes in and says, listen, your baby's gonna live, but your baby's not gonna be like other babies. In that moment, and when that baby is born, the call to courage says, are you gonna stay Are you going to stay? When your marriage is struggling and it is no fun, are you going to run and hide or are you going to move towards your spouse? It takes courage. Courage. And by the way, we need a courage that transcends every situation. You see, we need a courage that goes beyond courageous acts and into courageous living. In other words, what we need is the character quality known as courage. You see, we tend to think of courage courage as being those kind of men who charge a machine gun nest in order to save wounded comrades. That's what we think of as courage. But there is story after story of men who didn't fear physical death and were able to face down the machine gun, but when they came home, they were cowards at their very house. And they can never admit they they were wrong. And they can never admit their failures. And they can never love their children rightly and tell their kids that they love them. That's cowardice. What we need is a courage, a character quality that transcends both the machine gun nest and the moment when you gotta move in relationally. That's what you need. You know, there's all kinds of fears that we have which we need to be courageous about. And sometimes for many of us, death is not exactly our our worst fear. You know, in the the top 10 uh, diagnosed phobias in America, number one is not death. It's public speaking. 19% of all those who've been diagnosed with phobias in America have a fear of public speaking. Now, why is that? Because their greatest fear, by the way, death is number two at 16%. But public speaking, in other words, most of you would rather be dead instead of doing what I'm doing right now. (laughs) And why is that? Because more than death, we're afraid of not being accepted. We're afraid of being exposed. We're afraid of being seen as a failure. 
And public speaking exposes all of those fears. We need a courage that helps you face down all of these things, the character of courage. That is biblical courage. That's biblical courage. That's the courage that has integrity. And so the question is, how do you get that kind of courage? How do you get that kind of courage? How do you develop the character of courage? Three things this morning for how you develop that kind of courage. The character, quality of courage comes first and foremost from living for a worthy cause. Living for a worthy cause. Understand this. You will be exposed as a coward unless you have a worthy cause. You know, there are many things that we live for that are not very worthy causes. In other words, right, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that we're, that's the, the high point of our causes in life that really take no courage at all. Like, right, your fantasy football draft takes no courage. Taking multiple trips to TJ Maxx takes no courage, except for maybe on Black Friday. Takes no courage. I remember watching a, a golf uh, match on a Sunday afternoon in which one particular golfer had had a, a bad drive and put himself in a bad place. And so he was having to take a particularly risky shot over a body of water in order to put himself back in position to make par. And he makes this very risky shot, and the announcer said, oh my goodness, what a courageous shot. And you're going, really? A rich white guy on a beautiful golf course who's already super, super wealthy, that's courageous? That's not courage. There's many things in life that are causes that takes no courage. Developing the character of courage, though, demands that your life be lived for a worthy cause. You see, here's, the, here's there's three characters in this text, Saul, Goliath, and David. And the first is Saul. And Saul is a coward. Saul is exposed here as a coward who has a petty and shallow cause. And what's his cause? Moi, himself. You see, Saul is the one... Who's the one who's supposed to go out and face Goliath? It's Saul. Who's the king of Israel? It's Saul. And not only that, who's the big man on campus in Israel? It's Saul. When Saul is is declared king over Israel, the description of Saul is that of all the men of Israel, he's a head taller. He is Israel's giant. And more and more, as I study the life of Saul in, in, in parallel with David's life through these texts, the thing that I think that is Saul's greatest nightmare, Saul's greatest fear, is his own fear of his incompetence. He's an insecure man who's afraid of failure, which is why he hid when they want to make him king. Because leadership takes security. And he was afraid of taking a role in which people would take pot shops at him and in which he would be revealed, uh, be revealed as a fraud, as incompetent, as unacceptable. And here's this issue again. Here he is. He's called to be the man to step up and defend his own people, and yet he is exposed as a fraud here. He's afraid to have Goliath, the man, expose him in his weakness, to expose his age, to expose his inability to fight as well as Goliath. He's afraid of being, being defeated. He's afraid of his legacy going down as that king, that king that lost and put us in slavery. See, whatever it is that we most fear reveals what our greatest cause is. What's your great cause and what's your great fear? They often will go together. You see, if your passion is comfort, which, by the way, is perhaps the American great cause, then we will fear anything that threatens our comfort. We will fear being generous with our money because, after all, if, you're not, if you have to be generous with your money, there's not going to be left over enough for who? You. And so you can't be courageously generous. If self-preservation is your highest cause, then you won't be able to enter into relationships that are hard and difficult and dark because what's your life about? Preserving your energy, preserving your comfort. 
You won't be able to move forward to, and towards people. If our great cause is to be liked and to cherish, then you'll be constantly afraid to put yourselves in places of leadership where you'll have to make decisions that others might criticize. For example, like being a parent, right? If you're a parent of a teenager, what's one of the, what's one of the most damning decisions that you can ever make? You can make the decision to take the cell phone away. Now this, this means war, Right? Does your child, does your teenage daughter, when she takes away the cell phone, go, oh, most revered mother and father, I submit to your wisdom and your will for my life. No, what do they do? They look at you with daggers in their eyes and they say, I want you to die a thousand deaths. It takes courage to do the right things because your kid might hate you for doing the right thing. The cause, if the cause of your life is to look good, if the cause of your life is to be seen as competent, and your greatest fear is to be seen as incompetent and unacceptable and as a failure. You know what it'll turn you into? It will turn you into a liar. You know, and some of the great um, uh, issues in our, in, our, in our society where corporations or great figures in leadership go down, it's because it's not so much because of the initial act of failing. It's because of the cover-up over the failing, isn't it? And why do they do that? Because they're afraid of being seen as incompetent. You'll lie to save face. We need a worthy cause. Because if you don't have a worthy cause, you'll not have something that transcends all situations. What causes David to courageously stand before Goliath? Saul's great cause is himself. And therefore he can't do it. Because the cause of Saul won't allow him to go and face possible failure. But David's great cause is to courageously standing before Goliath is what? is the honor of the name of God. In fact, the very first time we see David speak in all the Bibles here in this text, in which he comes and he hears, Saul, he hears Goliath um, with his smack talk to the people of Israel, and he says, what shall be given to the man who can defeat this giant? And then the next thing he says is this, how can we let this man defy the name of the living God? What David cares about more than anything else is God's name is God's glory and God's honor. That's David's worthy cause. Is that your worthy cause? You see, we are created for a worthy cause. God has made you for a worthy cause, to live for his name and for his glory. And in fact, your souls long for something greater than the shallow, petty causes for which you've been living. The Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And then all these other things will be added to you. And yet for so many of us, we have traded a great cause for a war that is merely trite and petty, you know why so many young men and women are addicted to video games? Because it scratches the itch, the itch of being a part of something that's a war without actually requiring any risk or courage. You know why so many young men and women are addicted to pornography? Because you can feel like you have great performance without any risk, without any display of weakness. But David says there is a higher value than living for yourself what Jesus taught his disciples when he said to, teaches them how to pray, he said, hallowed be thy name. At the first and foremost call for a Christian that your great cause of life is the name of Jesus, the name of God. Why does David fight? So that the world may know that there is a God in Israel. Why do you get up every day? What's your great cause? What's your great cause? And will it transcend all situations and give you courage? Second, if you want to grow in a character quality of courage, you need to, you have to lean on a worthy confidence. You must be leaning on a worthy confidence. Again, there's three characters here, Saul, Goliath, and David. 
And if I were to ask you, which of the main characters are you most like? Here, here, here's going to be two answers. So if you are um, self-deprecating, you're going to say Saul. You say, yeah, I'm like Saul and all the other Israelites. I, I am. I'm a coward. But if you're really like we do in so many of our Sunday school classes, that we kind of we view ourselves as actually being David. And with the call is to be like David. But in reality, I think if we were to contextualize this passage correctly, we're most like Goliath. We're most like Goliath. You see, Goliath is the, actually the one who um, actually it looks most like North Americans. Because the credo of North American culture is this. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. Goliath believes in himself. Goliath is a supremely confident dude. And where is Goliath's confidence? In his own personal strength, his own personal size, and also in his technology, his, his, his armor. That's where he's looking to. He believes his sufficiency is enough. He is the epitome of self-reliance. Isn't that Americans? That's us. Goliath believes in himself. And listen, you'll hear this everywhere in American culture, but no place more will be more clearly stated than in children's movies. What's the, great, what are the, what's the great hero supposed to do? The crescendo, the climax of every Disney movie is this, is that you look deep down in your heart and you find the courage within you and you go and you get it done. It's so unlike reality because when I've looked at my own heart, what I've found is a puny, shrimpy, scared, frail person. And yet the call that we continue to give our kids is this, just look deep down in yourself and you'll succeed because of it. That only works so well until you run into something that overwhelms you. See, here's the interesting thing, because should Goliath actually be afraid? Goliath appears to have all the confidence in the world. He appears to have no, no fear going into battle. Shouldn't he be afraid? What actually takes Goliath down? A mere pebble. A mere rock. His overconfidence actually blinded him to the reality of the threats in his life. He couldn't naturally, he couldn't rightly see the threats in front of, in front of him. And that's the reality. When we teach this whole, oh my goodness, you can find your own strength in yourself, that's where you're going to end up one day. I heard the story of a guy this, this week, a non-believing man, doesn't believe in God, very successful man, and he said, but his father had just been diagnosed with a terminal disease, and this, and this very successful but non-believing man said this, my whole life I thought I was fearless, but what I have learned through my father's sickness is that it is easy not to be afraid and to believe in yourself when you have not been confronted with a real nightmare. You see, that whole believe in yourself garbage works until you're actually met with the reality of life. Goliath's confidence in himself, and because of it, it actually makes him a fool. It makes him a fool. By the way, by the way, for us Christians, you see, that's who Saul is. Saul, and you want to see that Saul has the same exact worldview as Goliath. Saul's the religious one. Saul's the king of the people of Israel. He is God's man. Saul knows all the right lingo. Saul actually even says to David, when David's about to leave the tent to go fight Goliath, what does he say? May the Lord go with you. He knows the lingo. And yet what is actually Saul's functional confidence in? The strength of the man who's fighting and in the armor that he wears. Because he looks at David and he goes, ah, I don't know. You're such a youth. You can't go fight this guy. And he goes, well, you're small. But guess what we also have? We have this armor over here that you can wear. That's where his confidence is in. You see, Saul will get up and say, oh my goodness, my confidence is in the Lord. But his functional confidence is in his own strength, in his own technology, in his own sufficiency. But who is, what is David? Where does he place his confidence in? What does David say? David has a well-placed confidence because his confidence is not in himself. 
It's in the Lord's. David runs onto the battlefield. I want you to understand, to highlight where David's confidence is, is the, the audacity and the ridiculousness of the story. Because we've lost it as church people. A little, a teenage boy has go, is going up against a seasoned veteran with nothing but a slingshot. The kind of thing that your kid gets in his stocking for Christmas. And he goes at him and he runs at him and he kills him with a slingshot. This whole story is meant to be comical. It is laughable that this would actually happen. You see, this story, we make it about David and his great bravery and his great skill. In reality, what it is trying to do is highlight how great and big and strong the Goliath is and how weak and small David is. You see, the three people that speak about David leading up to the battle, first is his brother Eliab, which we didn't read. But David shows up and Eliab goes, why don't you go back to those little sheep? What are you doing here? He calls him a punk, treats him like the little brother that he is. Then Saul says, you're merely just a youth. You're just a little boy. And then he goes out and Goliath says, what? You're a puny. What is this? Little boys with sticks are going to fight me? The whole point of the text has been Goliath is enormous and David is, is he adequate for the job? No, he's inadequate. And the whole reason why it's in the Bible is to show not how great David is, but to show how small David is. And yet in that, it shows God's what? Adequacy. At the point of this text is not how great David is, it is how great God is. And even David says it, right? It is not my battle to fight, it is whose battle? My confidence, my trust in this, that God will win the victory for it is the Lord's battle. Some of you need to memorize that one phrase. And you need to use it as a liturgy in your life, morning and evening. The battle belongs to the Lord. You know what the beautiful experience it is? To be a broken person who comes to the place of going, I have nothing to give. The battle's got to belong to you, God. If you, as a pastor, you know, one of the most frightening experiences of my life is to have someone come into my office and we sit down for counseling and they list, the way it always goes, I go, okay, what's the issue? What can I help you with today? And they usually go on for about 30 minutes listing out all their problems. And the whole time in my own head, I'm going, it's like the first, that first tail on a roller coaster, it's going click, 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 click. And I'm going, I got nothing. I got nothing for this person. I got nothing. I have, I don't have the words to say. I don't have the wisdom to give. I don't have, I can't even remember what the Bible says about things. I am, my mind is scrambling. I am, I'm literally in my head, I'm going, oh God, I got nothing here. I got nothing. This is too much for me. This brokenness is more than I can handle. How many of you experienced that? Come to a place where you realize you can't change the person around you. You can't change your child and you can't change your spouse. But there is great freedom in being able to say the battle belongs to the Lord's. It is the Lord's battle. When your child is walking away from the Lord, when he has defined God and he's walking away from the faith and you've done everything you possibly can, you've sent him sermons and books, you've said all that, you've said your piece a thousand times over. And eventually you have to come to a place and say, the battle belongs to the Lord. God, you're gonna have to do something in my child's heart. When your spouse has grown bitter and years of bitterness against you from your own failings, and the wounds that you have inflicted and your marriage has gone cold and you've done absolutely everything to reconcile and it's not working and your, your marriage appears dead, you have to say the battle belongs to the Lord. When you've got a caustic employee or a coworker, who anytime you bring up anything remotely spiritual, they jump down your throat, you've got to say the battle belongs to the Lord. God, I can't change this person, but you can. I can't face this situation, but you can. David says, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. The battle belongs to the Lord. Where's your confidence?
Is it in how great you are? My goodness, you can, I, listen, go, go take that approach. You go try that. You go try that a while. And then you can come back licking your wounds with the rest of us who realize we don't have what it takes. We don't have it deep down in our hearts. We looked under there. It doesn't get better. We have to turn over the battle to the Lord's. You need a confidence, a well-placed confidence. Third, if you want to develop the character of courage, you have to look to a worthy champion. Develop a character of confidence by looking to a worthy champion. You know, the way we, for some reason, we always interpret this passage as if we are David. And we are supposed to be like David. Be like David. But that would actually be bad interpretation. Literally, it would be bad interpretation. Because it is written for a particular people. It is written for the people of Israel as they're facing difficult things in their history. To give them courage. Tell them about who the Lord is. It would be much closer to say that we are not David, but we are actually the people in the army that are behind David. We're not David. We're not Saul. We're not Goliath. We're the puny peons who are back there, the nameless folks in the army of Israel. That's who we are. And here's the question. At the end of this text, what we're going to see is that the men of Israel rise up and they chase after the Philistines. Now, what is it that gave puny, frightened men suddenly the courage to enter into battle? What gives them that courage? Well, I'll tell you what it isn't, first and foremost. First, what it isn't, it isn't to look at David. They didn't look at David and go, man, what an inspiring guy that David is. They didn't look at David and go, man, that's a great model for me. And if I just, if I just would think about how great David is over and over again, then I could have the courage of David. That doesn't work. You see, if you think you just information your way into courage, it doesn't work. Let me tell you a story. It's from Stephen Ambrose's book on D-Day, where he accounts the story of the 101st, the 82nd, and the 506th Airborne. Paratroopers. And in the book, he's highlighting these men who are hero of heroes in so many ways. And these paratroopers were dropped behind enemy lines the night before the invasion. And they were supposed to go and to disrupt the Nazi defenses. And after they drop in, he shares the account of a young private named Francis Pallas. And here's what Pallas says. He talks about the cowardice of one group, though. He said, one group took cowardice to a whole new level. Hearing all kinds of noise and singing from a distance, he said, I gathered a squad near me. Then his men sneaked up on a farmhouse. In it was a mixed group of American paratroopers from various divisions. They had found a farm full of liquor, and they were drunker than a bunch of hillbillies on a Saturday night winding. These men knew they were at war, and yet they refused to act like it. They lived in dangerous denial, And in that, they endangered countless others who depended on them to do their parts. What's he saying? What we find there, most paratroopers were greatly courageous, but what we found in these men is the 101st Airborne was a a group of men that were more well-trained than anybody else in the U.S. military. They had all the training, all the information they needed to be courageous warriors. They, they, had, they had the best leaders were given to the paratroopers. The best sergeants and the best commanders were given to the paratroopers. They had the best models, and yet they couldn't be courageous. They had all heard Dwight D. Eisenhower's great letter to his army on the night of the eve of the invasion. Now, if that isn't inspiring, I don't know what is. They had an information, they had modeling, they had inspiration, and yet it didn't work. They were still cowards. Joe Novitson, a pastor I enjoy listening to, said this. He said, we tend to believe that enough information will provide the inspiration to stop our never-ending capitulation. That we think if we just get enough information, if we just have a, a good example out there, then that will change us. And we'll be inspired to go and take that hill 
and defeat that giant in our lives. It has never worked and it never will. You see, this is actually what they try to do to David. In verses 24 through 27, David comes to them and he goes, Who, what in the world is going on here with this, with this Goliath guy? And the Israelite soldiers say, listen, whoever goes out and tries to defeat this Goliath, man, he's going to get Saul's daughter and he's going to get riches and he's going to be famous. Isn't that great? And David goes, but what about the name of the Lord? And their answer to the name of, to this whole is called like, hey, we got to defend God's honor. Their answer is, yeah, but they go back to, but there's riches and there's fame and there's Saul's daughter. See, what they're trying to do is they're simply trying to get information. They simply repeated themselves about what a person gets if they face down the Philistine. Information that serves as inspiration doesn't work. It doesn't work. But what makes the men of Israel ultimately courageous? Two things. And these are big words. 50 cent words for you this morning. What ultimately makes the men of Israel courageous is this, is because their champion imputes his victory to them. We need a champion who imputes his victory to us. And I'll explain what that means in just a second. David does not rescue them by imitation or inspiration, but by imputation. I remember earlier I said what Goliath is coming out and doing, he's calling Israel to representative war. And what this is, is that Goliath would come out and represent the Philistines, and he'd say, Israel, send your champion out. And whatever your champion wins, you win. Whatever your champion gets, you get. So if your champion loses, you become slaves. If your champion wins a great victory, you, the whole army, get a a great victory. In other words, so whatever David accomplishes is accrued to them. Now, this is really important. Understand this. Imputation is that David is not fighting with Israel, and David is not fighting for Israel. David is fighting as Israel. He is their representative, so that whatever David gets, they get. And what we see is that what we need, and ultimately what this account tells us, is we need a champion who will go for us and win the victory. And that's who David is. He's the one who wins the victory for Israel, and that's what we have today. You want to have the courage to stand up in front of the things that you face in this life, then you need a champion who's actually defeated all the things that you fear. And where do we find that champion? You see, it's not found in David. It's not found in Moses. It's not found in Abraham. Remember, in Hebrews chapter 11, there's this, it's called the Hall of Faith. And in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, look, look at how great these men were. There's Abraham. Look at him. Remember him. And it says, remember Moses and remember David. But then finally, the writer of Hebrews says this. Ultimately, what you have to do is you have to fix your eyes, it says, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that word perfecter, the literal word in the Greek is a word called archegos, which means champion. Champion. What do you got to look to? What do you got to look to in order to have the faith and the trust that you need? In order to face with courage the things that face you, you need a champion that has gone before you. And that's exactly what happens on the cross. He says, what we see in Jesus is he is the greater David. Jesus is the one who is the shepherd of Bethlehem who accomplishes everything that we could not hope to accomplish. That's who Jesus is. Jesus came weak, just like David came. He was little, just like David was. He didn't save us in spite of his weaknesses, but through his weaknesses as David did, right? David has no great armor and no great sword. His weakness is all he's got is a slingshot, and it's through that that he wins the victory. Jesus wins a victory through a cross. David saves the Israelites from physical death. Jesus saves us from eternal death. David saves us by risking, saves the people of Israel by risking his life. Jesus lays down his life. In Jesus, we have the true shepherd king who walked into the valley between us and God. And he took care of the thing that we most fear. You see, behind all your fears of 
not being accepted, and all, all your fears of not being approved of, and even your fear of death, behind that is the fear of God's wrath. Is to have God say, separate yourself from me, I want nothing to do with you. And yet Jesus entered into the valley, and he stood in the gap. You know what champion means? When it describes Goliath as a champion, it means the man in the middle. The man in the middle, and that's who Jesus was. He went into the valley to be the man in the middle so that you will not experience the wrath of God. Instead, you experience the approval of God and the security of God and the inheritance that Jesus gets. David slays the enemy of Israel. He does it on the cross. And you know what's so interesting? David, David slays Goliath ultimately by doing what? By taking a sword and cutting Goliath's head off. Now, did David have a sword? No, what does he use? Ultimately, what David ultimately uses to defeat Goliath is Goliath's most powerful weapon. And what does Jesus use in order to defeat our enemy? He uses the enemy himself, itself. He uses death. He enters into death in order to cut the head off death so that for you and me, the only thing death is now for us is the door that takes us to eternal life. You see, when you believe in God, God now imputes Jesus' courage and his bravery to you. Everything he has done and everything he gets, you get, right? Remember that, that pattern? If David wins, Israel wins. And guess what? Jesus has defeated death, and therefore, if you're in Jesus, you've defeated death. Jesus has been accepted by God the Father, and so you're accepted by God the Father. Jesus gets an inheritance, so you get an inheritance. Now, here's how this makes you courageous. If you're afraid of losing money in this world, you're in a financially difficult spot, what you can know is this. Maybe God may not provide the money I need today. But I can know this, I can face poverty with courage because I know in Christ Jesus I am eternally rich. That's what I have in Christ Jesus. What are you most afraid of losing in this life? Perhaps it's losing face. Perhaps it's losing the one you love. You see, Jesus lost the one he loved the most so that you may be with Jesus, with God the Father eternally. Jesus lost face. He got spat upon. He was despised so that you might be accepted. You know, you can understand we have a champion. We have a champion. We sing of it. And one of our greatest hymns, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, it goes this way. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right army on our side? No. We're not the right man, singular. The man of God's own choosing dost ask who that may be, Christ Jesus. It is he. So we need... Christ's courage imputed to us, our champion's courage imputed to us, all his victory imputed to us. But that's not all. Because if we stop there, this is our last point. If we stop there, then there's nothing for you to do. And there is something for you to do. Because you actually are still living. You actually have to be courageous today. You actually have to do trust in the Lord and actually go and face your fears and have that difficult conversation and engage in that difficult relationship and face up to your financial circumstances. You actually have to do that. So what do we need? Here's the beautiful thing. Not only has our champion ultimately won the victory for us, but the second thing we see is we need a champion who has imparted his power to us. You see, what is it, you see, what is it that ultimately makes David powerful? What is it that allows him to be a champion and victorious? What is it that makes him go, even though I'm little, I'm going to defeat this Goliath? We actually see it in the previous chapter. You see, when David is anointed king, at the very end, what does it say about what happens to David. The Holy Spirit comes upon David in power. The Holy Spirit rushes upon him. Now, here's the reality. That the one, the spirit of Jesus, 
the one who came and faced all fears, faced forsake, being forsaken by the Father, who faced death, who faced the worst things that we cannot even imagine. He faced those things, and yet in weakness overcame them. It's his power that now lives in you. Brothers and sisters, don't despise this. That you say, yes, Lord, the battle belongs to you. And so, gracious God, the one who has come to live inside of me, the battle is yours. The battle is yours. And so, God, you're the victory, and I look forward to that. But in this moment, what I need you to do is to live in me and move through me by your power. I don't got it, but Spirit of the living God, I desperately need you. See, how are you a champion? How do you have courage? Is when you realize that ultimately the victory is found in Jesus. But second, also, that he has imparted his very power to you. Oh, you're weak, but his grace is sufficient. You are weak, but he is great. And what do we see at the very end of this account? What does the army of Israel do? They follow their champion, and they go do battle. See, it reminds me of this. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says this about the church. He said, the gates of hell will never prevail against Christ's church. Now, we tend to think of that as being that the gates of hell are, are coming after us. No. The text actually shows that what's going on there is that we are to move into the gates of hell, into the places of death. You need courage to enter into the broken and dark places in this world? He's given it to you. And the reason why you can have courage is because Jesus went before you, and now he goes in you by the power of his spirit. Let's pray. Gracious God, I think repentance in this moment is this, is to um, confess to you, God, that we've been trying to do things on our own strength. In our heart of hearts, we say, the battle belongs to me. And I got to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I got to do it. Oh, Lord, we, we do need to be stood up. We do need to continue. But gracious God, I pray that you would, you would stand us back up by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the good news of the gospel. That you would do it by us finally coming to the end of ourselves and saying, the battle belongs to you, God. So gracious God, repent of our looking to our own self-sufficiency. And gracious God, I pray that you reveal to us your great power, that your son in weakness could save us from the worst things that we could face. Oh, gracious God, I pray that we would cry out to you, I pray that we'd be a people who our, our motto and our credo is not believe in myself, but I believe in Jesus. I trust in him. Oh, gracious God, do that work in us by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.